Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that enrolments for next year's 12-month virtual course, 365 Days with the Tudor Queens, closes on the 1st of November. If you've been thinking about signing up, now's the time to get in touch. For all the details and to reserve your place, please visit my website on thetudortrail.com. I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Please visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Once you join the Talking Tudors community, you'll instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to take part in a member-only book club. They can also enter patron-only monthly giveaways, to name but a few of the perks. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled to welcome Naomi Kelsey to the show to talk about her new book, The Burnings and the North Berwick Witch Trials. Please note that this episode contains discussions about the horrific abuse and torture inflicted on the men and women accused of witchcraft in the 16th and 17th centuries. Listener discretion is advised. Naomi Kelsey is the winner of two Northern Writers Awards and of the HWA Dorothy Dunnett Competition 2021. Her fiction has been shortlisted for several further awards, including the Bridport Prize and the Bristol Prize. She lives in Newcastle with her husband, young children and their dog, and by day teaches English at a large secondary school. The Burnings is her first novel. Let's dive straight into our conversation. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Naomi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Lovely to be here chatting with you. So let's start with just you introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. I'm Naomi Kelsey. I am a historical novelist uh, from Newcastle and my debut novel, The Burnings, uh, about the North Berwick Witch Trials came out in June of 2023, so this summer. By day, I am an English teacher at a large secondary school um, in Newcastle and I have two small children and a Labrador, so I squeeze everything in (laughs) around them, really. 
So you're really busy is what that means. You got a lot on. Um, I actually just finished listening not long ago to your wonderful novel and I highly recommend it to anyone listening. It's the perfect October read, I think. It's brilliant at any time, but definitely great for October. Really fantastic. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about your book. What inspired this particular work? Um, so I've written historical fiction um, for a long time and I've always been particularly drawn to the 16th century, partly because, you know, I, I grew up with three brothers. So any era where women actually got to be like players in their own right really appealed to me. You know, I liked, uh, you know, learning about like, Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I um, like, growing up and that's continued into adult life. And this particular novel was inspired actually by a lesson that I was teaching to my year 10s about Macbeth. So I was sharing an article uh, written by Tracy Borman about uh, James I's obsession with witchcraft and how like Shakespeare was sort of um, pandering to that when he wrote Macbeth. So I was reading them this article and read a little passage where she described the shipwrecks that made James I think, or six as he was there in Scotland, made him think that uh, witches were out to murder him. And this was partly because of some like, attempted, he thought, uh, shipwrecks. So he thought that witches were trying to sink his ship, sink the ships carrying his bride, uh, Anna of Denmark, across to Scotland. Um, and because there were several storms in sort of quick succession, he genuinely believed that there were witches out to get him. So this section was all sort of about a storm that brew in uh, the Firth of Forth, which is between Edinburgh and uh, Fife. And I remember thinking that today, that part of the world would be quite beautiful at night, you know, you'd be able to see the lights of Edinburgh. It would be very pretty. You'd probably be on a very warm, luxurious boat sailing along, maybe with like, you know, a glass of mulled wine or, you know, a cup of hot chocolate or something. It'd probably be quite a pleasant experience. Um, But in the 16th century, it would have been so different. It would have been so dark and your ship would have been uh, made of wood that would have been creaking. Probably wouldn't have been much light, particularly in a storm, like any of the lanterns and candles and things that you would have in calm weather, you wouldn't be able to have on board a wooden ship in a storm when you were being tossed all over the place. It would have been so dark and so cold and so terrifying, particularly if you genuinely believed, as they did in the 16th century, that there were powers, both good and evil, that had uh, control over your life and your afterlife as well. So I was just thinking about the the experience of being on a sort of storm-wracked ship at night in the middle of the sea and how intriguing that was. And I was really fascinated by how James got so involved in the witch trials. Like there had been lots of witch trials um, in the 16th century, particularly in Europe, but this was one of the first cases where royalty like took an active role rather than just you know sort of nodding tacit approval and letting it like carry on in the corners of their kingdom this was a case where actually the king pretty much got his hands dirty like he was interrogating some of the suspects um in their cells um rather than you know sitting back in his palace and just letting it play out he really got involved and I was just so fascinated by that so uh yeah I got a bit distracted in the middle of this lesson that I was teaching uh my lovely attends at the time um and thankfully act one scene three did not come up on the exam because they probably didn't learn very much um due to my distraction in that lesson 
Oh, and I have to say some of those scenes on the, on the ships, I don't want to ruin it for anyone, but there are so quite a lot of gut-wrenching scenes that take place in Naomi's book, so definitely have a, have a read of it. Um, and I, we'll talk more about James as well in a little while. But in case there's people listening that have never heard of the, the North Berwick Witch Trials, do you want to just tell us a little bit more, like when did they take place and just a few more details? Yeah, so the North Berwick Witch Trials are the first like major witch trials in Scotland. Um, and they start in the early 1590s and like 1590 and going through to uh, around about 1592. And this is the biggest witch trial or series of witch trials in Scotland. So it's like really mass- a massive deal. And there we don't know the exact numbers of people who were accused or indeed executed eventually, but there were well over a hundred predominantly women um, from the East Lothian area who were imprisoned and many of them um, ended up going to the stake. But what is quite interesting about these witch trials, um, particularly for a novelist, is that yes, there were witch trials and there had been witch trials, you know, across the continent, there would be witch trials again. But these ones kind of coincided with actual, uh, for want of a better word, uh, normal, um, non-supernatural conspiracies that were brewing against uh, James VI. The the Scots had got a bit of a taste, I suppose, for dethroning um, Stuart monarchs by this stage with Mary, Queen of Scots and uh, James III as well. Um, so there was a genuine conspiracy like afoot to try and derail James's reign um, involving the Earl of Bothwell. And the witch trials played out alongside that and intertwined with that in some quite fascinating ways and exploitative ways, I would say, as well. It is just an extraordinary story, isn't it? And I can see why it's perfect fodder for the novelist. It's it's actually quite amazing. So tell us more about this Danish connection that you mentioned and the role that it actually played when it came to these particular witch hunts. Yeah, so um, Scotland and Denmark had had quite a close relationship over the centuries. There were um, a couple of queens, a couple of brides for Scottish kings who originated from Denmark. So I think the most recent one before Anna of Denmark was the wife of James III. So you know, there were trade relationships, there were intermarriages. So there was a, you know, the cultural influence that would would come with that. So the witch trials kind of started, well, there was a witch trial in Denmark that sort of precipitated James's witch hunts in Scotland. And that trial in Copenhagen had itself been influenced by some really large scale witch trials in Germany. I think there were four like major ones in the 1570s and 1580s. So all the sort of, you know, gossip was fermenting and all the rumours were uh, going into overdrive and witch trials tend to be contagious in history. Like once there's been one, there tends to be another one in the country next door and then another one, another one. It's like domino effect, um, but with witch trials. So after the German witch trials, there were Danish ones and these were partly in response to the storms that had beset Anna of Denmark's fleet. She attempted to sail to Scotland to marry James. She had to turn back and because the storms were so bad. And there was a bit of a a bit of a squabble between two high-ranking uh, Danish men. So there was Admiral Monk, um, who'd been in charge of the Danish fleet, and then there was the Danish finance minister. And both of them were kind of like trying to blame one another. Like, you didn't sail these ships properly. You didn't fund me, so how on earth could I sail these ships properly? And then when that sort of squabble, you know, <laughs> just ended up with them bashing heads, they were like, actually, maybe 
it was witchcraft. Um, so that became, you know, a very convenient scapegoat uh, for these two men who'd quite possibly not done their jobs properly. <laughs> um, and they ended up rounding up alleged coven of so-called witches in in Copenhagen itself, one of whom included the wife of the mayor of uh, Helsinger, as well as uh, lots of women whose names we don't know. There were a few who were named, like Anna Coldings, who appears as Erna in my book. There was another Anna, it was very confusing. And a woman called Karen, Karen the Weaver, I think she is. So yeah, they were rounded up and executed. And then suddenly people in Scotland like, ah, so maybe those storms that beset Anna and then beset James and then beset them again when they were both together and trying to come from Denmark to Scotland. Maybe those weren't natural storms. Maybe those were supernatural storms. And it seemed like to them, it would have seemed like a rational explanation because they genuinely believed that witches were abroad, witches walked among them and that witches did have the power to kill men to send um, storms out after them. And I want to talk a little bit more about James's attitude towards witches. So is this is this incident what kind of, you know, um, inspired his passion for searching witches out and for interrogating witches? Or was his attitude already developing prior to this? I find James such a fascinating character to explore. So he, I think until recently, he's sort of been depicted in a lot of fiction, a lot of historical sources as a bit of a caricature, a bit of a, you know, sort of slightly incompetent figure who was a bit drunk and overly influenced by um, his very pretty male favourites who kept chopping and changing. But actually, I find, I don't think he can possibly have been so useless and easily led because above anything else James is quite the survivor people were always trying to kill him you know the gunpowder plot is perhaps the most famous incident of that certainly to English people that's the one that happens almost immediately after he becomes king of England but people have been trying to kill him like all of his life someone tried to kill him while he was in the womb um, on the night that David Rizzio was murdered. They put a pistol up against the belly of Mary Queen of Scots, which uh, misfired. And then James, once he'd become King of Scotland, had like a succession of regents, all of whom met very sticky ends. Three of them were, well, two of them were definitely murdered. One of them was maybe murdered. And the fourth one, uh, James executed himself. Um, so he'd reached his majority by then, you know, clearly got a bit this is what you did with regents you killed them off when they got a bit out of hand so i think he must have been an immensely paranoid man someone who was very much afraid of his own shadow like some sources say that he wore armor beneath his clothes to protect against assassins which you know to a modern audience saying oh you know that's quite ridiculous what a what a drama queen and then you think no actually people genuinely were trying to kill him so <laughs> it's understandable so i think for a man like that like the idea that witches were trying to kill him would would have seemed so plausible um he also knew that there were many courtiers who would quite like to take his place as like mary queen of scots had been forced to abdicate in her son's favour. Um, James III, about 100 years or so earlier, had been, there was a rebellion against him and he ended up dying on the battlefield against the army led by his son, who would become James IV. It's such a, you know, bloody period in history. But yeah, like you have this sort of violent backdrop to his life that he can't have been unaware of. Um, so I think there's that fear driving him. And I also think that his position on the throne was in some ways partly the result of misogyny 
You know, Mary, Queen of Scots had been forced to abdicate for, for many reasons, but a lot of the antipathy towards her was in no small part because she was a woman um, and you had men like John Knox, the preacher, pronouncing many blasts of the trumpet, at least three of them, I think, against what he termed the monstrous regiment of women. And people would try and justify the dethroning of Mary, Queen of Scots by you know insulting her in all sorts of ways, you know, saying that she was a whore, that she was a bad queen and sometimes there were insinuations that she might have been dabbling in witchcraft as well which does seem to be a bit of a you know if she's a woman then she does something bad like witch you know that accusation was flung at Anne Boleyn it was flung at Catherine de Medici if they if they said it it tended to stick as well I think James was both terrified and also a bit of a misogynist and also determined to survive Um, and all of that meant that the witch trials were both an opportunity for him to you know stamp his authority down but also something that he really felt necessary to drive out what he perceived to be a threat and which you know in reality was probably just some very frightened and vulnerable women generally from poor backgrounds yes the brutality is quite awful isn't it and and what about Anna of Denmark what was her attitude towards witches did she kind of publicly support her husband's views or did she remain more quiet I'd love to hear more about that So Anna's quite an interesting figure in that whilst we don't have much indication of exactly what she thought about her husband's decisions, what we do see in her later relationship with James is that they they did argue a lot. They disagreed a lot um, about like how their children should be raised, like where they should be raised, like when James became king of England and was coming down across the border, Anna didn't want to come which justifiably, as it turned out, like she was pregnant and she ended up either miscarrying or having a stillbirth. So she didn't want to come and that kind of made sense given what uh, later happened. They were at odds um, over religion. Like some people think that Anna secretly converted to Catholicism. It was a bit of a no-no following Mary, Queen of Scots um, in Scotland. And obviously England had had quite a lot of turmoil as well. So um, whilst we can't say for certain exactly what Anna felt about these particular witch trials, we do know that there was a lot of conflict between her and her husband. But at the same time, you know, Anna had been twice on ships in, no, three times, in fact, three times, um, because her fleet turned back twice uh, before James came across to Denmark to try and fetch her. And then their ships were hit by storms on the way back again. So she, you know, she'd been in the midst of three lots of storms by the time she finally made it to Scotland. So she would have been frightened and she was um, struggling for a very, very long time to conceive an heir. And, you know, she she may very well have thought, yeah, why not witches? Like, it makes sense if you have, you know, that ideology, if you've been raised to have that ideology. And if everyone around you, like across a lot of mainland Europe is screaming witches, 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 like it would be very hard to not listen to that and not be persuaded that you know these horrible things that are happening things happening to you maybe it is you know supernatural forces being leveled against you yeah and you were talking about the fact that it's obviously contagious you know what happens in one country and then it kind of spreads to the neighbor why do you think at this point in england it, the same craze didn't sort of take off do you think it's because elizabeth was on the throne and she was a woman and you know i'd love to hear your thoughts about that yeah, I think it is really interesting to to speculate. Is it something unique about the English mentality? And I'm sure like <laughs> there are some people who'd love to think it was that. And we do see like after James becomes king of England that there are increasing 
frequencies of, of witch trials, like in Pendle and in Lincoln as well, and later on in like Essex and Manningtree, um, but very, very few. And yeah, it is really interesting to, to think about why that was. Is it that Elizabeth wasn't keen on the persecution of women in general? You know, Elizabeth was also quite a canny political operator. She was very good at not committing herself too much to one thing or the other you know saying one thing and then being like actually I didn't mean it you know I, I did this isn't really what I want to do you know she did that with Mary Queen of Scots's execution earlier in her reign like she did a bit of you know I don't want to make windows into men's souls kind of thing like um she was very good at sort of hedging her bets so it may have been you know just good politics like she didn't want to have absolute slaughter running riot across her land. Maybe she thought that that might make her look potentially weak. And if you start executing lots of women, at some point, those women are going to be, you're going to run out of poor women. It's going to be some of the more powerful women who get accused next. Um, You know, the mayor's wife in Copenhagen, in Helsingborg even, she was caught up in this. At some point, one of the women who got accused in England would probably have been quite close to Elizabeth herself. So it's probably quite a a dangerous prospect to let witch trials happen. So that might have been part of the the reason. But, you know, Elizabeth was very good at not verbally committing herself too much one or the other. So I think we'll never know for certain exactly uh, what she was thinking on any topic, uh, let alone witchcraft. Very true. And and you obviously have a, a, a huge cast of characters in your novel, so many fascinating people. So do you want to tell us about some of the main alleged uh, witches and what were their supposed crimes? What could these people allegedly do? Um, yeah, so two of the main alleged witches in my novel are Gaylis Duncan and Agnes Sampson. So as with a lot of poor women, there's a lot that is unknown about them in the historical sources. You know, even women like Anne Boleyn, we don't know exactly what day, year she was born. So, you know, people like Galus and Agnes, um, even less is known for certain about them. But what we do know is that, you know, they were from East Lothian and they were pretty poor. And Galus Duncan was working um, as a servant in the household of the Bailey called David Seaton, who is quite a quite a monstrous character um, in my novel. And Galus is the is the first person to be accused in Scotland, and she's kind of singled out by David Seaton. And the first thing that he seems to accuse her of being guilty of is being out late at night. Which sounds yeah. quite innocuous. Um, some, yeah, <laughs> some people think that Galus um, was like young, like a teenager, um, which is how I portray her in my novel. And you know, as a <laughs> as a secondary school teacher, um, teenagers being out late at night this this is probably not witchcraft. You know, um, this is just what teenagers do. So she is, yeah, like she's accused of being out late at night. Some this may be because she's also like helping with midwifery work. And Agnes Sampson is a is a healer and midwife who is doing quite well. You know, she's she's not rich by by any stretch of the imagination, but she does have connections, like clients probably who are in Edinburgh and who are pretty wealthy, who have like noble blood, like Euphemia McCallion um, and Barbara Napier, like she has connections with those. Agnes's accusations are quite interesting. There's over 50 of them, I think 52 in in her ditte, like the the list of um, crimes that she is accused of. And some of them are just, this isn't a crime. Like one at one point she is accused of singing, like singing songs to a man who was very sick. And you think, well, 
yeah why not like you know man's possibly dying why wouldn't you sing songs to him but of course like once the witchcraft accusations have started flying around then it's like oh well those can't possibly have been um the sort of songs we sing in church they're not hymns they must be like incantations invoking the devil and um so yeah like some of the things that she's accused of you just think this this is not witchcraft this is just a woman going about like her work um and getting on with things something else that she's accused of is she and euphemia like are both accused of this and it's putting powdered men's corpses underneath euphemia's bed while she's in labor to get rid of her labor pains her grinding pains they call them um which does sound pretty gruesome Uh, (laughs) but actually what this probably refers to is powdered mummy so mummy was a substance that people got from like egyptian mummies because they thought like the bitumen that does have some genuine like medicinal properties in like arabic medicine they thought that every blackened mummy had this substance in it that could heal and so it was a bit of a roaring trade and no small amount of really dodgy unethical grave robbing going on where people would get um pad mummies and like sell them across europe and you had the likes of king francis the first or second king francis the of france anyway. <laughs> um so he used to carry around this pouch of powdered mummy to like protect him against all of the evils <laughs> any illness he'd have this little pouch of you know powdered corpse um and that would allegedly protect him catherine de medici was in on it all sorts of people were doing this trade so probably what agnes had given you for you know in the middle of her labor pains the woman's in agony she's like i will have anything you know <laughs> you think like women today in in labor and they're like yeah. give me all the drugs give me the epidural give me everything so you is probably just like it's really hurts can i have something and i can just like well i've got this it's supposed to be powdered mummy it might work you know they give it a try because you know she's desperate so <laughs> this is what she's probably accused of it's almost certainly something that everyone's at in edinburgh at the time like women who want some kind of pain relief they resort to all sorts of measures in, at that time and, you know, powdered men's corpses. While it sounds like this, you know, man-hating monster kind of thing is probably just, you know, something that was sold by apothecaries and everyone could buy it. So everyone did. But it gets levelled against them as, a, you know, a witchcraft accusation in the you know, sort of crucible of, of witch trials. Now, a lot of the, the obviously really brutal and, and just gut-wrenching scenes in your novel have to do with the extracting of the confessions from these women and men as well. There were men involved as well. Tell us a little bit about uh, the records when it comes to torturing these people. Was this happening? Do we know this? And what kind of implements were they using to extract these confessions? Yeah, so we know that, well, firstly, torture was illegal at the time unless it was being done to a witch in you know in which case like knock yourself out kind of thing so complete you know double standards ethically and a lot of what we know about the the torture inflicted on these women in east lothian comes from a pamphlet um news from scotland and the the methods are described in a very innocuous way so the first thing they talk about is walking so the, the witches were walked and you think, all right, you know, as a word, as a concept, that probably doesn't, you know, really strike the fear into anybody at all. So, you know, like walking is something we do for fun. You know, you take 
the dog out for a walk. But actually what this means is that the women are being forcibly deprived of sleep. They kept them awake for days and then they would really get started on trying to draw out information from them. So one thing that they would do was refer to as pricking malevolent you know you think like pricking a finger on a needle you know it's a sort of sleeping beauty that springs to mind um you know it doesn't sound particularly damaging but then you sort of look into it and exactly what was done well they would have quite a large needle you know not a embroidery needle it would have been enormous and they would prick like literally every mark that they found in a woman's body and you know, like if you there's a moment in the book where like Galus just looks at her arm and she's like oh god like how many moles freckles scars are there just on one limb and you know they would yes they would prick them on all the the visible marks and then they would also like prick them in like really intimate areas like in the genital area because they thought well that's where the devil is most likely to got hold of them so these women are like genuinely being assaulted and it's got no small amount of like sexual elements to it like it's it's abuse really what's what's being done to them and it's utterly horrendous but it's described in these pamphlets as you know just pricking you know like a really small word that makes it easy to sort of gloss over um, and, you know, it's horrible to think about, but I think it's also wrong to not recognise what was done to these women in the name of the law, like these women and men who who were accused of witchcraft and, and tortured. And, you know, some of them died in the poll booth like, due to the torture that they would had inflicted on them. So I think it's sort of wrong to look away however hard it is to you know look straight at it um, and there were other things that they were doing as well you know, like they had thumb screws and they had something horrible called the witch's bridle it's also known as the scold's bridle and it's like a sort of metal like clamp really like it um, there's like two strips of metal that go across your face and it like holds your mouth open and, like cuts in and it's again like it's absolutely gruesome to to consider like you can see pictures of these things um, i think they have them in museums as well and yeah they're just utterly horrific to to behold so yeah these poor you know pretty not particularly well nourished to start with prisoners uh were not only like deprived of sleep and kept in you know poor sanitation they were also like horrendously tortured and then put on trial before some of the most educated people in the country and you know they wouldn't have had much formal education if any it must have been absolutely terrifying before they started you know throwing theology and you know trying to out you um, and really putting you like on your toes so it was really vicious and exploitative and incredibly cruel um, treatment that these women suffered absolutely and you mentioned earlier that numbers there's not really a record of how many people but did you say around 100 people may have been executed or, or arrested yeah, so we know at one point there were over 100 people in the toll booth who had been accused during um, these witchcraft uh, trials. They have done this survey of um, Scottish witchcraft have identified about 3,700 people who were accused of witchcraft. And I think something like 70 or 80% of those, they they think were were executed. But they also think that the number may have been as high as about 6,000. Um, so we'll never know for certain because, you know, like the records are just not there. And this is about thinking about the, the ones that maybe operated slightly outside of the law, you know, sort of I suppose the equivalent of like a lynch mob kind of thing. So yeah, like the ones that we know about were in their thousands between, so in the years that the Witchcraft Act was in operation in Scotland was 1563 to the 1740s, I think it was, or thereabouts. So yeah, like up, like between 3,700 and 6,000 people were accused in that time. And the North Berwick witch trials alone were in the hundreds. 
yeah, difficult to think about. But as you say, I think it's important that you've shone a light on these women. And and so what's next for you? Do you have any plans for another another novel? Yeah, so I have a, a two-book deal with Harper North. I have handed in book two to oh. uh, my editor, so I'm just awaiting her feedback on that, hopefully later this month. It's, it's another dark historical novel with supernatural elements and it's set in the 16th century again and oh, this time in London and it's uh yeah it's sort of it's about exploration and exploitation and oh. it's got a mysterious globe at its center so watch this face oh I can't wait to hear more about that that sounds right up our alley perfect now at the end of episodes of Talking Tudors I do the little 10 to go game so let's begin so first question what is an inspirational place close to home that you enjoy visiting uh the Northumbrian coast is absolutely stunning and um, we're about 20 minutes away from beautiful beaches like Cresswell and Tymouth and uh like Alnmouth a bit further out Mortworth so yeah the Northumbrian coast is absolutely fantastic especially with a dog our Labrador loves the sea yeah I find that area so atmospheric it's like you can sort of feel how ancient that area is I love yeah. it um and what about a new skill you'd like to learn this is more of an old skill that I'm kind of trying to get back. I did Italian at GCSE level, so I haven't done it since I was 16. Um, but I've just started doing Duolingo Italian again. I've, I'm on a 30-day streak, so I'm feeling pretty snug with myself. We'll see how that keeps going, um, but I'm really enjoying it at the moment. And what book are you currently reading, or what was the last book that you read? I've just finished a really brilliant um, historical novel called The Walled Garden um, by Sarah Hardy, which was earlier this year and it's set in the immediate aftermath of the second world war so uh, the heroine alice's husband stephen sir stephen um comes home from the war like and will not talk to her will not touch her so you know like the walled garden i think is a metaphor right. for you know these characters who will not talk about their um experiences and it's about like the sort of decay of the the country house and um how you rebuild how you regrow how you heal um in the aftermath of war it's, it's really lovely it's poignant it's beautiful um and i really i really recommend that for lovers of historical fiction and you're obviously really busy with your work and, and family life and writing. So what do you like to do to relax and unwind a little bit? I like to walk the dog. Um, I like to be outside where possible, you know, on a bike or on feet. And I'm also quite into sewing as well. I like oh, to, to make things. I'd, I'd like to try embroidery, but I'm not sure I have the talent or the patience. <laughs> Fabulous. And, and what about a, a travel destination or a place in the world that you would like to see one day? I would love to go to the Loire Valley and see all of the chateaus on the river. I'd, I'd quite like to, you know, like canoe or paddleboard sort of <laughs> up to a castle. I think that'd be just um, a really, it's a really sort of romantic idea, I think. But um, I think that'd be lovely to sort of, you know, travel between the chateau. I don't even know if it's possible. I don't know if the river actually allows you to do this, but um, I would like to see lots of castles along the river. I think they look absolutely stunning. Oh, it's beautiful. I was there earlier this year. When was I there? In January. And it's amazing. I was only there a few days and I recommend more days because there's so many castles. It's actually, it's amazing how many there are. And what about the the last film or series that you watched? The last one we actually finished, we're really bad at like starting things and then, you know, life, life happens and then yeah. we're like, oh, 
Are we do we really care? Are we really going to go back to that? Um, we watched um Daisy Jones and the Six, which was great fun. Um, I enjoyed the book by Taylor Jenkins Reid as well. So yeah, that was great escapism, and it all sounded a bit Fleetwood Mackey. So that was <laughs> yeah. also really nice as well. And of course, you're going into um, some cooler weather now in England. So what comfort food do you enjoy during this these cooler seasons? Um, it's got to be a cup of tea with some hobnobs, always me. Hobnobs, did you say? Yes, definitely a hobnob. They are the best biscuits for dunking. I don't know if I've ever had a hobnob. I'm going to have to Google what a hobnob is. Oh my goodness, <laughs> you are missing out. They are the best. All right, next time I'm there, I'm going to go look for one in the store. Definitely. So um, what about a, a mystery that you would like to solve? And this could be a historical mystery that you'd like the answer to, or it might be a contemporary one. Oh, that's such a good question. Um, a mystery I would like to solve. I would like to know what on earth happened in the household of Catherine Parr and Thomas Seymour when Elizabeth I was a young girl in their care. Like, what, what on earth was that all about? Like, the weird sort of power plays and relationships between the, you know, possible grooming, um, some people even think possible pregnancy, and Catherine Parr, like, hitherto really intelligent woman? Like, what was yeah. she doing? What was it's all very strange. I would like to, you know, be a uh, fly on the wall for <laughs> that brief period in, in Tudor history. Definitely. I think the Tudor period offers, offers so many mysteries, doesn't it? So many things that we need to know and we don't know. <laughs> and final question for you. Do you have a favourite artwork? And again, this could be a 16th century artwork or maybe from another period. You know, I'm not sure I have a, a complete standout one because I think art is so much dependent on what you're feeling at that time. I so I I live in, in Newcastle. Um so the recent felling of the tree at Sycamore Gap was really sad uh, for a lot of people around here. Like I used to lead Duke of Edinburgh expeditions um, to that area of the world. Like I loved, you know, that moment when you you see it over the rise of of Hadrian's Wall. Like um, it's so like iconic. So I just bought a print um, by an artist, a local artist called Rebecca Vincent um, of Sycamore Gap, and I think that's going to become um, a real favourite just because of what it like represents um, and what we've lost. I think that's going to be a really like poignant reminder but it's also like a really beautiful print as well so that's that's going to be my favorite when it lovely no that's lovely and the very last thing and I'll let you get some rest um is the Tudor (laughs) takeaway so something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode so do you have a takeaway for us Yeah, so I mentioned that I'm quite into sewing and I love like textiles. I love textile history and like costume. I I do think in like a really shallow way, like the costumes of the Trude period may have been what like drew me um, to the originally. Like I had um, some colouring books of Henry VIII and his six wives when I was little with all like their dresses. So I'm really fascinated by that. My recommendation would be for people to look at Whitney Antiques which is based in Oxfordshire, but they post quite a lot on social media. And um, a woman who works with them, um, Isabella Rosner, who is on Twitter, I follow her and she posts a lot of like absolutely stunning pictures of 16th uh, or 17th uh, century embroidery and uh, later centuries as well. And I just find it so interesting to look at the sort of intricacies of it. And um, I think it's a really interesting like record of women's work and women's art, actually. Like th- these are genuinely works of art. And I think the embroidery kind of gets dismissed a little bit by people today. As you know, it was just something that the women did to like stop themselves getting bored. They didn't have anything else to do. But the things that women have created 
in history is so interesting to look at. You know, Mary Queen of Scots was immensely into her yes, embroidery yeah. as well. And, it, you know, it had political statements running throughout it. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend that people look at the work of Isabella Rosner and um, Whitney Antiques because it's, it's really fascinating. That's a fabulous takeaway. And again, not one that anyone has mentioned before. So thank you oh. so much. I do follow Isabella on Twitter. She has, yeah, some of those images that she posts are incredible. So that's a great takeaway. And thank you so much, Naomi, for taking the time to talk Tudors with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.